This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. We're here at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference. We have a candid conversation about meds, sex, and side effects, as the program is called. Before we're going to talk about this subject, maybe on my, my left, maybe you, you can introduce yourself. Tell me what, you, what you're doing in this area and why this subject is important. My name is Dr. Stephanie Graff, and I am a breast medical oncologist. I am the Associate Director of Breast Cancer Clinical Research with the Sarah Cannon Research Institute. We are doing a ton of clinical trials, including the Elaine study looking at lasofoxifene for women with metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. And I think that this is a really important conversation because a lot of patients don't understand that sexual health is a part of health and is something that they should be able to openly discuss with their oncology team to optimize their quality of life. Then we have another doctor. I am Dr. Kelly Shanahan. For the majority of my career, I was an OBGYN in a small town, but I have been a metastatic breast cancer patient and advocate for the past six years. I loved this conversation about met sex and side effects because it brought together my current position as a patient who is on hormone blocking therapy, along with my former career as an OBGYN and in an opportunity to speak to fellow patients, other doctors, about the importance that quality of life matters so much to us patients and that I'm so excited about the Elaine trial because it's a drug that potentially could help be hard on our cancer, but easy on the rest of our bodies. Then we have... I'm Dr. David Portman, an OBGYN by training, currently the uh, CEO as well as founder of Sermonix Pharmaceuticals. Uh, we co-sponsored uh, the event tonight largely to raise awareness uh, around uh, issues that I've been researching and, and treating my entire career, which are symptoms around menopause, female sexual dysfunction, and health. And now that we're in the oncology space, I realize that bringing some of these issues to light where the patients are, are suffering in silence, and we can, uh, as, a, as a women's health oncology company, help raise awareness that this was a perfect uh, venue and format to discuss these issues very candidly. Our last guest. Uh, good evening. I'm Kelly Davis. I'm a metastatic breast cancer patient and advocate. I work with Metaviver and a number of other nonprofit organizations. I'm most, I guess, well-known for being a, a hot topic conversation starter, not being afraid to talk about things like depression, things like sexual intimacy and sexual health, and the challenges that come with being a metastatic or a breast cancer patient in this particular setting. So I'm delighted to hear pharmaceutical companies talking about this, that it's not just about living longer, which, you know, we're going to be greedy. We want to live longer and we want to live better as well. And as we start to live longer with metastatic breast cancer, we want to make sure that we continue to have great quality of life and being, you know, intimate and sexual and whole as, as women and even men with metastatic breast cancer, right? Because this is a conversation there too, is critical to our, to our quality of life. It's not secondary whatsoever. We deserve to have it all. Let's continue about that because when you look at part of that as advocate, you're dealing with communication. How important is communication and the understanding, communication with a partner, communication with your healthcare team, communication with friends and family members maybe? How important is that communication in a better life for you as, as a patient, but 
also for people to understand you, your healthcare team to understand you. How important is that? I think it is the most important thing, that open communication. And it's, it's something that's just been taboo our whole lives. You know, just talking about sex is something that we just don't do. And, and oftentimes we're shut down in the, in the clinical setting when it comes to you know, asking this question to our oncologist or we're not asked those questions, you know, by them. You know, how is your sexual health? Do you want to talk about your sexual health? You know, you know Dr. Graff talked about that earlier in Powerful Conversation Starter. With our partners, it's so critical to be open and candid and, and really ask, like, what's on their mind? Because we know if the, if the intimacy has changed from, you know, prior to breast cancer diagnosis and now it's something that they're thinking about and maybe they're, they don't want to ask us, you know, hurt us or be insensitive to our needs. You know, you're going through a terminal illness and we don't, we don't want to push those buttons or whatever, but we have to break that stigma. We have to break down those walls because this is why people are being left. This is why people are being abandoned, divorced, cheated on in the metastatic setting. And I didn't realize how prevalent it was until it happened to me. And I started talking about it on social media and being very open about it. And, you know, Me Too is something that resonates across the board in so many different ways. It is epidemic being cheated on and having these intimacy issues with metastatic breast cancer. So we have to do something about that now. And we have to raise our voice in that respect. Because if you you talk, you you mentioned divorce and, and in combination with breast cancer. When you look at the rates in that case, I mean, how prevalent is that? I would say it's more than 50% of the people that I that I deal with on a regular basis have been cheated on, have been divorced, have been abandoned because of the situation. And, and it's not just, you know, it's not just the sex, obviously. It's it's a bigger conversation about intimacy. But we're not encouraging ourselves to talk about it. We're not encouraging our partners to talk about it. And it just becomes this black hole that festers and the satisfaction is sought elsewhere. So it's not just, you know, the guys are, are jerks and they're cheating on us and they're terrible people. It's we have shut down. The topic has been shut down and we have to do a better job of, of elevating that conversation and raising the volume. Let's also include the other panel members here. A couple of words come to mind, right? Noted a couple of words like fear, trauma, uncertainty, anxiety, emotional uh, response, stress, grief. Tell me a little bit about it. maybe the doctors maybe, but, but maybe also you as a doctor-patient. Well, you know, certainly as someone who straddles the line between medicine and and being a patient, frankly, I enjoyed being on the other side of the stethoscope even more. But uncertainty, that really resonated with me because we are, as metastatic patients, uncertain about how long we are going to live. And when I was first diagnosed with metastatic disease, the first thing I did, not being an oncologist, I Googled median life expectancy, which is three years. Now, I've doubled that because I've never been average in my life and I'm not starting now. But as we live longer, at first when we're diagnosed, it's like, well, so who cares if I ever have sex again? Who cares if my hair falls out? Who cares if I develop neuropathy? Who cares if my joints hurt? Because I just want to, I want to be alive. As we are living longer with this disease, these quality of life issues matter more. My husband and I will be celebrating our 25th anniversary in January. Thank you. No one thought it would last, including my former business partner. Well, everybody who said it wasn't going to last are divorced. And he and I have managed to not kill each other for almost 25 years now. But these kind of these kind of issues around intimacy, around sexuality, around being able to go on a walk, go on a hike. I live in a ski resort community, like who's going to shovel the snow? They become more important the longer we live. And I think that's something that we have to address. As a patient, I feel like I should be grateful for the fact that I have lived double the median life expectancy with this disease. But as a patient and also as a physician, I know that we can do more 
and that we can do better. And I'm really excited about the opportunity that for patients to become engaged with the drug development process. I think for a long time, our oncologists and our researchers and our our people, our pharma companies doing drug development, they just thought about, we want to keep these people alive longer. And it's now incumbent upon us, the patients, to express that, yes, we want to live longer. But as Kelly said, we want to live better and that we have really, really smart people and that we can develop drugs that can help us live longer without having all this collateral damage and side effects. I think some of the statistics that I just noticed is that 89% of women that are diagnosed with breast cancer that may lead to metastatic or advanced breast cancer, they are five years after diagnosis is still alive. So that's one of the latest numbers that actually were, I think, presented earlier this year. So that is a very good number, but it also has an impact for your clinic, for example, uh, Dr. Graf. So, I mean, we definitely are seeing more and more breast cancer survivors, both long-term survivors with metastatic disease and women who had early-stage curative intent disease that are, or early-stage breast cancer that now are on chronic endocrine therapy. We have extended endocrine therapy for a lot of patients from five years to 10 years. So we also have more patients that need a relationship with an oncologist for longer. But then also that means that they have side effects for longer. We were talking about words earlier. I think the word that I would use is vulnerability. Like we are asking patients to be vulnerable and tell us how they feel. And often patients just want to show me their brave face when they're in my clinic. And we're asking them to be vulnerable with their partners and talk about how they feel. How easy is it? Because you don't have a lot of time with each patient. You have a limited time with your patient. How easy or how difficult is it to open up, to to get them to talk in that respect, for you to discern that there may be a problem or not? And what would you advise somebody that may shy away a little bit, how to to open up to you? So I think it's different for everybody, right? Like I'm an extrovert. I love communicating. I'm really good at broaching difficult topics, but that's not going to be true for every patient. And that's not going to be true for every physician. And so one of the pearls we talked about tonight was that I think that either the physician or the patient needs to invite everybody to that conversation. So as a physician, I think you can say, are you comfortable talking a little bit about your sexual health? I want to, you know, kind of ask questions to see how you're doing. Some patients may not be comfortable discussing that with their physician, discussing that with their partner in the room, discussing that with somebody of the opposite sex, depending on the physician and patient genders. But patients can use that same language with their doctor where they say, I have a lot of questions about my sexual health. Are you comfortable having this conversation? And if you're not, can you recommend somebody that I could have these discussions with? Let's take a break and then we're back with a candid conversation, a roundtable discussion with doctors and patients about the quality of life following the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. At the table, we have Kelly Shanahan, a MetaViver board member and patient and advocate. Kelly Davis, a MetaViver director of social media and patient and patient advocate. Dr. Stephanie Graf, Director of Breast Cancer Program at the Sherrick Cannon Cancer Institute, and Dr. David Portman. He is a leading women's health physician and uh, the founder and CEO of Somonix Pharmaceuticals. I'm Peter Hovland, and this is The Younger Scene Brief. Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. 
This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. If you're just joining us, this is the Yongasin Brief. Today with a candid conversation and roundtable discussion with doctors and patients about quality of life following the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer coming from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium held December 10 till 14, 2019 in San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Portman, I mean, there was a study done earlier this year, actually published earlier this year, about um, 667 patients. It was a study done in Europe. It was a very remarkable number. 46% of the patients said that the information that they got met their needs. I think that's a low number. What can you do to help with that? As a, a women's health company that have has morphed into a, an oncology company, I think we bring a, a unique perspective. And I hope that that's you know, what I bring as a, a clinician as well. Having but you been, do have the, the clinical experience. Yes, having been an OBGYN and really dealt with quality of life issues at the forefront of the practice, which is taking care of women who are going through symptomatic menopause, women with painful intercourse. These are things that we addressed on a daily basis. We want to try to bring those issues to the forefront in a very difficult context, which is patients who face a lot of other challenges. It's hard enough, you know, sexuality is hard enough when things are okay. And then when you add cancer diagnosis on top of that, when you add estrogen blockade on top of that, when you add a chemotherapy-induced menopause on top of that, it becomes a critical matter for the clinician to be able to recognize how severe some of these symptoms might be. So I think that that's really what drove us to, to co-sponsor this event was to try to, to break these barriers in communication, which I think that as women's healthcare providers, we have an advantage of being able to have those kinds of candid conversations. And we, we think that uh, bringing those into the oncology offices can only enhance the patient experience. You mentioned the word menopause. Tell me a little bit, because often people understand that this is something that happened when you're old or older. What are the symptoms for older people? Hot flashes, I think. I mean, I hear that from people. Uh, but also, what are the things that might happen if you're a cancer patient at a younger age? What are the differences in, in things to understand, not only for the clinicians, but also for the patient and, and, and their associates. One of the things, and again, as an OBGYN dealing with patients in menopause and then someone who was approaching menopausal age at my first cancer diagnosis, the typical things are hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, vulvar irritation, increased urinary tract infections, decrease in bone density, which can lead to fractures and back pain as you lose some height. Natural menopause is a gradual process. I, I used to tell my patients that going through menopause is like turning down the dimmer switch in your dining room, but that when you go through surgical menopause or menopause from ovarian suppression when you're diagnosed with an estrogen-dependent cancer, it's like abruptly turning the lights off. Your eyes don't get a chance to adjust like they do when you turn a dimmer switch down. So it is an exacerbation of the symptoms. The symptoms are much more severe in someone that's in an, in an induced menopause, often due to cancer treatment or removal of their ovaries or ovarian suppression drugs so that they can be on their hormone suppressing agents. It's much more dramatic. It's much more abrupt. And it often seems to last much, much longer because women, a large percentage of women that go through natural menopause have, have symptoms for a while and then they start to taper off. But many of us that are in menopause because of our treatments 
the drugs themselves contribute to some of these symptoms. So the symptoms are ongoing. And as someone who was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer at 47 and metastatic disease at 53, I expected to have those symptoms. But somebody like Kelly, who was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer in her 20s and metastatic disease in her 30s, you're not, you're not thinking you're going to have to deal with that for another 20 to 30 years. And I think there's that, in addition to the physical symptoms, there's also increased psychological pain because of that. And that's so true. Like you said, diagnosed early stage breast cancer at 26. Um, I was in hormone therapy for five years, but still had a decent libido. I still had very strong functioning ovaries. I mean, I was 26 years old, right? I still had a, had a menstrual cycle, pretty healthy sex drive as well. I remember like having a stage three recurrence, which was, you know, right after my stage one diagnosis about five years later and having surgical drains in because I had a very large tumor in my, in my axilla removed and having sex with my husband while having a surgical drain flopping about, you know, I was, I still had the desire. I still had the capacity. I mean, it was, it was something that I enjoyed. I became metastatic around six months later and my ovaries had to go. Like, obviously, the ovarian suppression was not working. My ovaries were just too healthy to suppress, you know, chemically. Within a week, I had my ovaries out, which was the easiest surgery I've ever, I'd ever done. Within a week, I was completely uninterested in sex. And then even when it was attempted, it hurt so bad that I withdrew from the entire topic. I didn't want to talk about it. I went to bed before my husband did because I didn't want to have that, you know, that interface with him from that point forward, gaining a lot of weight due to menopause, you know, being on the drugs that I, that I was and am on still to this day. And then, of course, the, you know, the, the mental side effects. I went into a deep, deep depression. It was institutionalized for. I've come back from that, obviously. But, you know, I was not warned about these things. Nobody told me that these things are going to happen to you. And it wasn't even like, hey, you're going to have some, some, some bad side effects. It was just, we need to keep you alive, Kelly. You know, we need to, to do the things that we need to do to give you the best chance of survival. So that's wonderful. I appreciate the salvage impact, you know, of, of my oncology team to, you know, to get me to that point. But it has to be holistic. We have to have a greater, broader conversation from the very beginning. Hey, you're going to have your ovaries taken out tomorrow. Here's what you can expect. You know, we want, you know, we want, we want to be prepared for this so you're not taken by surprise and so your spouse isn't taken by surprise because it can really be debilitating and life-altering, all those things happening at once. The research I actually referred to earlier actually mentioned that more than 60% of the women that undergo the same thing that you experienced found that the, the issues like sexuality, intimacy, and, and everything that has to deal with that were not adequately addressed by their care team. So looking at Dr. Graf, as a physician, would you be able to, to address that from the get-go, from the beginning, when, when you have a patient that deals with, with breast cancer, when, when that happens? What are some of the, maybe the red flags that actually uh, come up and say, well, we need to talk about this before, maybe before treatment? You know, I think part of it is that when you have a new diagnosis of metastatic disease or a new diagnosis of early stage breast cancer and are making the decision to go into surgical menopause, for example, you know, you're talking about what your survival outcome looks like and what your treatment is and what the surgery will be like and what the surgical recovery time is. And I might, as your physician, rattle off like, well, these are the three or four most common side effects. But there's so much stuff that you're covering in that conversation. You're not doing a deep dive into all of those. And honestly, a lot of my patients are kind of in an overwhelm point that they're going to maybe not remember everything, maybe not be ready to do that deep dive. And so I think the most important thing is that 
all of these conversations are longitudinal. Just because we didn't do a perfect job covering your your emotional health or your sexual health on appointment, you know, October 1st doesn't mean that the appointment on October 15th can't be all about that. And so I think it's important for patients and physicians both to kind of keep an ongoing list of of issues and making sure that you're talking about them at regular intervals, pain control, emotional health, bone health, cancer control, cancer outcomes, end of life planning. All of those things are conversations that we have to have and there's only so much time. And so just continually making sure that those appointments are high impact. I mean, if you look at the opportunities, for example, to bring an advocate with you, maybe record if the doctor approves of that or if that communication can be recorded to listen back to what's being discussed. How important is that? I think those are all wonderful suggestions. Um, I think bringing an extra set of ears with you, whether it is an advocate or a, even a family member, a spouse, a spouse, close friend is is very helpful, especially as, as Dr. Graf mentioned, when we're first given this bad news about a metastatic diagnosis, so many things go through our mind. And, and I think there have been studies done that information has to be repeated multiple times before it's grasped. You know, we have a very exceptional oncologist here who I wish all of us could have an oncologist like her. My oncologist with my early stage diagnosis and the first oncologist that I saw when I was metastatic never brought up these issues and believe in if I had mentioned it, especially the first oncologist I saw with my metastatic diagnosis would have fallen through the floor. Oncologists are not trained in sexual side effects. And I think a lot of times often forget that they have colleagues that are OBGYNs, that while we may not be experts in cancer, we are certainly experts in treating menopausal side effects. Now, when I practiced OBGYN for all these years, I was a little bit of a rebel in that 20 years ago when I had a patient with breast cancer and that had sexual side effects and were complaining of vaginal dryness and, and discomfort and pain with sex, I would say, well, there's not a lot of data, but if we give you a little tiny bit of estrogen it's probably okay, but I don't know for sure. But that was really a rarity 20 years ago. And, and in many communities, it's still a rarity because OBGYNs are not comfortable. You know, it's like cancer. Oh, like we don't want to do anything to increase the cancer. And again, this is an opportunity for collaboration and conversation. It's not that big a deal to pick up the phone and call an oncology colleague and say, what do you think? For oncologists that are uncomfortable in discussing these issues, to say, you know what, I really think you need to go see your woman's, your, your woman's health provider, go see your OBGYN, because they know more about treating these vaginal issues you know, than I do. And one of the things that I thought was one of my strengths when I was practicing is I, I didn't have a problem, I didn't have an ego problem saying, I don't know. Let's find someone who can help you with this. And again, not everyone is comfortable doing that no matter what their field is, but I think we need to be collaborative physician colleague to physician colleague, and also collaborative with our patients, our patient partners. We've tried to bring that fresh set of eyes to our development program and, and listen loud and clear to the patient experience. As a gynecologist, I knew that women who went through surgical menopause or natural menopause would have vaginal symptoms. And we know that women who've been on prolonged breast cancer treatments have that even more severely. So as part of our clinical program, we want to look at that and we want to look at that longitudinally over the course of the trial. So as opposed to, to other trials, which really aren't looking necessarily at reporting sexual outcomes, uh, we have incorporated a vaginal and vulvar health 
assessment in our uh, phase two trial, because these are exactly the kinds of questions that patients uh, want to have addressed. If you look at clinical trials, because that's obviously important in, in oncology, important in all parts of medicine, this is not a standard part of the conversation. It's not. And, and that's really, I think, one of the main efforts we're trying to make here tonight, as well as uh, as, as a company that's focused on women's health and, and oncology, is to try to uh, change that. These issues should be at the forefront of the conversation. What is that patient experience? Everybody put it so nicely is that, yeah, they, they want to be alive, but they also want to live. And, and that has to do with their quality of life. And we have to assess that as part of, of any comprehensive drug development program. Let's take a break and then we're back with a candid conversation, a roundtable discussion with doctors and patients about the quality of life following the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. Clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. If you're just joining us, this is the Youngest in Brief. Today with a candid conversation and roundtable discussion with doctors and patients about quality of life following the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer coming from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium held December 10 till 14, 2019 in San Antonio, Texas. One of the things that comes to mind, and maybe that is something that you've seen in your practice, there is a difference, a cultural difference in some situations. Some groups of people, some cultural or, or racial backgrounds may not necessarily feel very comfortable in talking about uh, these topics. They might not even be willing to talk about, about cancer or if they hear the word cancer, it's like, okay, talk to the family. One particular case coming from Europe, it was not necessarily unheard of, especially in Southern Europe, to basically only talk to the, to, to the, the family. The patient itself never knew about the disease or what was, was lacking or what was the problem. Looking at those consequences here in the United States, there, of course, there are different racial groups. How important and how different and how difficult is that to deal with these different patients' populations? The diversity of our patients is broad across a million different lines, whether that's racial or religion or socioeconomic status or any of a million factors that go into those conversations. And I think it just comes back to inviting the patient to participate in the conversation, understanding their yes or no. So if you're saying, are you comfortable talking about your sexual health? And they say no. Easy follow-up question can be, is there a different physician or provider, faith leader that you would be comfortable having those conversations with because some people may just want to get help in a non-clinical setting for their relationship or intimacy issues. And the other half of that is asking them what their taboos are. Like, are there certain taboos that you feel like you can't talk about because of your cultural background? Because that might help a person that fits this particular demographic bu bucket better understand what we can and can't delve into and explore. Again, it's communication and understanding your patient. One other thing I'd like to tag on to this is that our relationships with our physicians change with time. An answer that is no at the beginning, the, the first or second time you're seeing the patient may change. And that 
just because you've asked this patient the question once, you know, maybe revisit it a bit down the road when you've been seeing that person for a while and they may have more trust in you and you've gotten to know the person and their circumstances. In the metastatic setting, we always need to ask our patients and we as patients need to communicate, what are your goals for this therapy? And the goals are going to change. When I was first diagnosed metastatic, my daughter was a um, not quite 15 and a sophomore in high school. And if you told me, if I cut your right arm off, but you will make it to your kid's high school graduation, I would have done it. I would do anything right now because my daughter graduates from college this spring. And you come to be there. And I would do anything. But once I reach those goals, then quality of life may become more important than quantity of life. And this changes for all of us patients as we go through. And that is another thing that needs to be addressed by our clinicians as we proceed along this pathway of living longer and longer with metastatic disease is that the goal that you asked me about Mm -hmm. a year ago or even six months ago or six weeks ago may have changed. So it's an ongoing conversation. It's something that, that today may be different than tomorrow, may be different than the day after tomorrow. And we as patients need to be able to articulate that to our physicians because not all our physicians will ask, what are your goals for therapy? And I think we need to be able to tell them right now, I don't care what the side effects are. I have this milestone I need to reach. And then when that changes, it's like, okay, you, this drug, I'm miserable on it. And now I want to address things that may give me a better quality of life. One of the things that I heard that uh, some of the issues that you talk about as a patient may also impact the doctor, the physician, in a sense that they may feel that they're not trained, not equipped, may even feel embarrassed. As a patient, what are you doing with that? I think it's important to acknowledge that that physicians are human. They're a lot like us as patients. If we see them getting embarrassed over something, you know, maybe we change the conversation a little bit where we say, you know what, if you're not comfortable having this conversation with me, like like Dr. Graf said earlier, who's the best person to talk to with me about this? As a patient, you can recognize that and you Absolutely. would definitely encourage or ask for another doctor? Yeah. Or as like, who's the best person to have this conversation with? I don't want to make them uncomfortable. And although like as, as, as my doctor, they should be able to have a conversation, everything from constipation to sexual health to, and to efficacy of the treatment. In some situations, there are, you know, there are palliative or specialist oncologists that exist in our clinics that we're seeing pop up all across the country where, you know, they specialize in women's health and the side effects and palliative things that come along with being a, a long-term survivor or metaviver in the breast cancer setting. So it's okay to acknowledge that, you know, they're human too. If they're not comfortable having that conversation, okay, who should I have this conversation with? Because it's something that does need to be talked about. I can imagine that as a woman with breast cancer, you may feel more comfortable with another female doctor. What is the average there? What 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 is important in that respect? For me, it I've always had male doctors, always had male gynecologists, always had male oncologists. I feel more comfortable with a guy and I don't know why. It's just how I've always like, just been brought up. So I don't know what the, the ratio of doctors, male versus female, but I think it really depends on who you're comfortable with. And m- most times when, I, when I've had the conversation with male doctors about sex, they get that sheepish sort of, you know, shut down look. And I even talked about a panel that I did for a fundraiser a while ago and asked my own oncologist as well as a couple other uh, friend oncologists as well. What would you talk to me about if I ask you about sexual health and about vaginal atrophy and their posture, their faces visibly changed sitting in in the chairs and kind of looked down and looked around like who's going to, who's going to tackle this question? Basically the response was, I would refer you to somebody in our clinic who specializes in women's health. And that's wonderful. Like if we're 
seeing those, you know, positions pop up and, you know, folks that specialize in that particular type of care, that's great. But that's not always a reality in some of these smaller, more local regional cancer centers. So if not them, then who? Because like, like we said, as we're living longer, we need to have those conversations and be empowered to refer to the right people that, that can they can really listen and understand what's happening. I would just add to what Kelly was saying that I think that a physician-patient relationship is a really important relationship. And just like we're not all attracted to the same partner for our marriage or our romantic relationships, we're not going to connect with the same physicians. Is gender a part of that for some patients? Probably. But is it the only part of it? No. I mean, I have a ton of male colleagues who are phenomenal communicators or phenomenally empathic. And I have female colleagues who aren't those things. And that's okay. Like we all get to be ourselves and we'll find patients and patient relationships that are rewarding regardless of of what our individual things are. That's the crux of the whole issue is the communication part to be able to be able to communicate and to share information with one another. That is key with everything. As a, a woman gynecologist, I felt that I had the same equipment and could relate to a lot of these issues. I became a much better physician when I was dealing with infertility, with miscarriages, when I finally had my own child. I understood concerns of my obstetrical patients better as I got a little older and started Again, I never had any menopausal symptoms, so I still had a hard time relating. But I think it's different. And I've had male oncologists, and I currently see two oncologists, one male that's relatively close to me and one super expert in metastatic breast cancer who's female. They are both phenomenal people. And I think, it again, like, like Stephanie said, it depends on the individual. I have had female colleagues who are OBGYNs who were cold and very technically competent and men who were warm and caring. And I think you have to find that person who fits best with your personality. I am a very, very direct person. Mm -hmm. I was very direct as a physician. I told patients like it is. And some people didn't like that. And some people adored that. When I choose my physicians, I want people who are going to be direct with me. I don't need quite as much hand-holding. But I do still like the fact that that both of my oncologists are people that start off the conversation with, how are you doing? I know when I see my local oncologist at the end of this month, he's going to walk into the room. He's going to say, I know you're at San Antonio. Tell me what's new because he's a general oncologist. And I know when I go to San Francisco again and I see my super expert, not just an expert, but a super expert in MBC, the first thing she's going to ask me is, so how's your daughter? I know she's graduating soon and we're going to have those conversations. And again, it's very individual and we have to find what works for us. Some people need a lot of handholding. Some people need directness. And fortunately, we have a wide variety of personalities in medicine. Most of us can find the, the type of physician. And, and one thing that I can say as a physician, so many patients are so afraid to ask for a second opinion, to tell their doctor that, that this relationship's not working. And to seek another opinion. They're afraid they're going to offend their, their physician. We as patients, we're hiring you. you. You work for us. And what's important is that we seek care from the person that's best suited to us. And really good doctors welcome second opinions. 
I used to love it when my patients would get a second opinion and the person would agree with me. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so smarter than I thought I was. We welcome that. And we understand that you're not going to click with everybody and that you want the patient to have that that relationship that's going to be best for the patient. I think that when Dr. Groff mentioned empathy, I think that that's the common denominator that, that every good clinician should have. Dr. Shanahan mentioned different character traits, different personalities. You know, some are more blunt, some are, are more soft in their approach. But in this setting, I think that the key is that empathic personality is you have to be able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And that goes especially for these very intimate issues is that you have to try to, to see where are they now in this uh, very challenging journey. And I need to try to understand as much as I can and, and be as, as much of a resource to them as I can. So I think that that's, uh, that's really the quality and having the skills, you know, you could, you could certainly be very empathic, but if you don't have the skills in, in asking about some of these delicate issues, then it does become a challenge. So I think that training is important. We've did some research and, and just found that patients were very eager to have information about sexual health discussed. And yet there was this disconnect with their physicians not being comfortable with that. So that's what we really have to, to do is bridge that gap. And if this uh, conversation helps bridge that a little bit, then I think we're, we're helping the process in the long run. Let's take a break again today from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, which is being held December the 10th to the 14th, 2019 in San Antonio, Texas. Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way and they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist or visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. If you're just joining us, this is the Youngest in Brief. Today, with a candid conversation and roundtable discussion with doctors and patients about quality of life following the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer, coming from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, held December 10 to 14, 2019, in San Antonio, Texas. The Youngest in Brief is in San Antonio for um, the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. A special meeting for anybody involved in the treatment of breast cancer. The interesting thing, it's not only breast cancer uh, dealing with women, but it's also breast cancer uh, for men, something that is um, getting a lot of attention lately. We um, had a roundtable discussion uh, with a number of physicians, and, and I'm here with um, Eric Rosenthal, our editor-at-large uh, of Oncosine and, and the Oncosine Brief. We attended a roundtable discussion with a number of physicians, with Marissa Weiss, she is the chief medical officer and founder of Breast Cancer Org with Dr. Kelly Shanahan, a MediViver board member, with Kelly Davis, a MediViver director of social media and patient and patient advocacy, Dr. Stephanie Graff, she's the director of breast cancer program at the Sarah Kennan Cancer Institute, and Dr. David Portman, he is uh, a leading physician in sexual medicine and the founder of Sermonix uh, Pharmaceuticals, one of the co-sponsors of the meeting. Eric, we had this conversation, I would say a candid conversation, with the people that we just mentioned, some from a medical perspective, some from a, a patient perspective. One doctor participating was both a doctor as well as a patient. 
What are your uh, takeaways, uh, important takeaways uh, from, from this conversation? Both Kellys were, were uh, metastatics survivors. Right. One was also a OBGYN. And so she was talking from both perspectives as a patient and as a, as a physician. One of the, the complaints that they had throughout the conversation was that many times when they went in for their um, initial therapy or meeting with their oncologist at the beginning, nobody addressed a number of issues, including sexual needs and, and what would happen. And they sort of pointed out that, you know, a lot of doctors are just too embarrassed, uh, too embarrassed to discuss it. It's interesting because we don't want to trivialize this fact that we're dealing with psychosocial issues and sexuality is, is part of that, and especially with breast cancer, where there's a lot of issues re regarding a sense of oneself. What these women were talking about was the fact that in many cases, they were not really fully informed what the chemotherapy would do in terms of early onset menopause and, and, and other things. So my observation was, I said that with any medical exa initial examination and, and meeting, there should be a full-fledged list of risks and benefits for the therapy across the board. We acknowledge the fact that a lot of women or, or any patients are overwhelmed initially and may not take it in or only hear what they want to hear. But what I had said was it was important that at some point during the course of the treatment that these elements be addressed. Yeah, I, th I think it, I think one of the, the key takeaways that, that I picked up was the fact that it's about quality of life, health-related quality of life is one of the key things. One of the key things in that aspect is communication. Communication, and there, this actually refers to some ref, uh, research that I referred to also in the conversation about the fact that many women, and I think it was close to 70%, are not happy or are concerned about the fact that certain things when it comes to the quality of life and, and the, the, the expectations after treatment are not addressed. It's not addressing their needs. It's not, and, and that's not only sexual needs, but it is also in a much broader scheme, everything dealing with the quality of life. And, and, and I think the communication is important. It's not only the communication with the physician, it's also the communication with the partners. And, and to some extent, even with their friends and family, and to create that awareness and understanding in that respect. I agree. The, the issue is awareness and sensitivity, and, and a large part deals with medical education and maybe societies like the American Society for Clinical Oncology and other groups. I mean, perhaps they're doing this already, but maybe they should make their oncologists more aware that these are issues. I think the other important thing is at some point, you know, a lot of these issues are we're dealing with not a gynecologic cancer, we're dealing with the results of chemotherapy for breast cancer. So it's not a matter of necessarily having a oophorectomy or having a hysterectomy. It's a matter of having the organs be damaged or harmed by the effect of the chemotherapy. And I think at that point in time, it's time for more of a partnership, maybe with handoffs to gynecologists and gynecologists as well, and to welcome other specialists into the conversation. I think so, that was also a point being made by, by the panel members. Yeah, so if an oncologist is embarrassed or does not have the scope of expertise, there should be a handoff to the experts to address those issues. But again, getting back to what I had said initially, if you had a full checklist of risks and benefits of any type of treatment addressing the psychosocial issues as well as the medical ones, then the patient would have more of an understanding of what to expect and what they could do in a preventive 
form to mitigate some of the uh, side effects. It was interesting in the conversation, it was being said that, that patients often are grateful for the fact that they are alive. The alternative is not that good. But at the same time, they want to live. They want to have a good quality of life. And I think if you look at breast cancer therapy, I mean, in the past, I mean, most women with metastatic breast cancer, advanced breast cancer, were probably not living longer than three years after treatment or even less in some cases. Right now, we're talking five years, we're talking 10 years, we're talking 15 years in the opportunities. And, and of course, that is in many aspects the result of the fabulous research, medical research is being conducted. But if you look at, for example, the guidelines from, from an, 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 the American Society of Clinical Oncology, for example, the organization you referred to earlier, and other organizations, they, they still look at the medical necessities, the medical interventions to make things, quality of life for patients better. But they're not necessarily looking at the things that are go beyond uh, the, the medical necessities in that respect. The person who raised that was was the advocate, Kelly Davis. And what she said was because, I, and this is interesting, this brings to mind a situation I was in probably uh, 25 years ago. And there was a medical oncologist who treated breast cancer. And it was a woman. And she basically, her attitude was, which I'll call paternalistic, even though she was a woman, was patients are complaining about hot flashes. And her response was, the hell with it. You know, they're alive. Well, that's... I think survivorship and the quality of life issues have taken on a new importance and understanding today. And I think that callous response, it would not be appropriate today. And I think that's what Kelly was sort of talking about. Right. It's what she wanted to say was that patients, and especially in this case, metastatic breast cancer patients, are grateful to their physicians for what they're doing to keep them alive. But there's more to life than just surviving Yep. They want to live their life as well. And Kelly... And, believe, and, and a good quality of life. Yes. And, and Kelly is, I believe, 37. And she talked about having first been diagnosed at 26. And she has a, wants to live a full life. And she's capable of it. But she has to know, again, she and others, what the risks and benefits are. And again, what can be done to mitigate some of those, those risks. And, and I think one of the points has also been made, and I think that it's very, very important. There may be a situation that the communication, and we were talking about it earlier, the communication between the physician, and it can be a man, it can be a woman, doesn't matter, but the communication between the patient and the medical professional are not optimal, or the medical professional does not uh, address the things or doesn't answer the questions. That one of the points being made was that a medical oncologist or the medical team works for the patient. That means that you have the right to ask. You have the right to ask for a second opinion. You have the right to uh, to find a different doctor if the doctor that is treating you is not meeting your needs, your specific needs, your specific needs in terms of quality of life and other aspects. And I think that is a key thing for people. They should not be afraid. They should not be shy away from asking a change in, in, in the treatment team if that is necessary. Yes, Peter, that was an important part because there were two max second opinions. And, and, and I know, you know, you want a meaningful second opinion, not a rubber stamp. That's right. But the other important thing was, and again, as you raised, and I've seen this with a lot of people I know, they don't want to ruffle the feathers of the doctor. They don't want to insult the doctor. And the point I had made, and actually it was interesting because the physicians in the in the group were all nodding, If you ever have any type of physician or medical professional who balks at a second opinion, drop that person. That person should welcome it to just reinforce that what's being done is the the most proper course of treatment for the patient. And I think in all cases, it's about the patient. 
It's about to make, to make sure that in most cases with breast cancer, a she, I mean, I mean, feels comfortable and can can have a full life, a high quality of, of, of health related quality of life. And I think that's that's the key thing for for from the, from and this the meeting. The other thing is, if you if you go for second opinion and you get a completely different treatment therapy, then get a third opinion. The sure. point is, it's what's best for the patient, not what's best for the doctor. On that note, we're going to um, end this particular this episode of uh, the Youngest in Brief. In the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about something that has to do with how not to lose your hair with a cold cap approach. We are talking about genetics. In, in the diagnostic of breast cancer and how important it is not to look at, at one particular test called recreational tests only, uh, but if there is a need to actually look at the, some medically uh, indicated tests. So there is a, a ton of news here from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Uh, again, this is the Youngest in Brief and tune in next time. The Alcazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by Inpress Media Group. Support for the Alcazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.